Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can, can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we are entering your presence to hear you speak to hear you speak to us from heaven, to receive from your hands true bread from heaven that we might eat of it and never die, that we might know the glories of your son, his infinite worth. God, we praise you for the good, good news of the gospel. God, we give you glory. We pray that as uh, the, the person and work of Christ is proclaimed once again today that we would be united by faith with what we hear so that that message would be a benefit to our souls. Lord, so that you would receive glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? One could hardly think of a better question for an unbeliever to ask. It sure sounds promising, doesn't it? I mean, any of us who want to be faithful to our Savior and long to see souls come to a saving knowledge of Christ, what we wouldn't give to have people like this man come to us and say, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life, to have an eager inquirer asking, asking how to come into the kingdom of God. I wonder how you would answer him if he had asked this question of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If it weren't for the fact that it's Jesus who is the one doing the speaking here, we might think that he spoiled the opportunity, that he spoiled this religious or this, this evangelistic opportunity to point the man to the way of salvation. Now, of course, Jesus does answer the question, but it's not at all in the way that we might expect him to. It's probably not in the, in the way that we might be inclined to. Characteristically, Jesus first sidesteps the man's question and he asks a question of his own. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? The, the man comes to Jesus and he, he says, good teacher, and Jesus zeroes in not on the question itself, but on the title that the man ascribes to Christ. And Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Now that does a couple of things. First, it provides an opportunity for this young, well-to-do man to take a careful look at the one he's speaking to. Take a careful look, a careful consideration into who this teacher is. God alone is good, not Mother Teresa, not Corey Tim Boom, not Rosa Parks, not your own mother. God alone is good. Only God is good. So you do realize who you're talking to, don't you? God alone is good in that sense of absolute perfection, in that sense of infinite, spotless righteousness. He's the thrice holy God. And you dare ascribe that title to me. You do realize the implication of what you're saying, don't you? You understand what you're saying? And then if you have your wits about you, you see the position that that leaves you in. No one is good except God alone. The apostle Paul understood that. He understood it when he said, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So you have an opportunity here on one hand to evaluate the Lord Jesus. And then on the other to perhaps reevaluate your own self-understanding, your own self-perception. And you need the former to understand the latter. You must have it impressed upon your heart. You must be convinced, absolutely convinced of this fact that no one is good except God alone before you can understand your own condition 
or you will always be comparing yourself to someone else. You'll always be comparing yourself to some other person, some other mortal man, some other fallen man instead of God himself, who is the standard of righteousness until we learn to hold ourselves up to the light of his glory and holiness, we'll never understand ourselves. We'll never understand ourselves rightly. The answer to the question that's posed at the beginning, what must I do to inherit eternal life won't ever begin to make sense to you because we don't understand the problem we're facing. As those who have been born in sin, separated from God, we won't understand the answer, the solution that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ extends to us if we don't understand the condition that we're in, then we are not good. So Jesus surprises this man, not for the sake of surprise. Jesus isn't ever interested in just mere shock value, but he surprises this man with this question to get his attention and to teach him something about the condition that he is in. We commonly refer to the man in this story as the rich young ruler. That, that's a composite title taken from the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They each have accounts of this episode. All three of them tell us that he is rich, uh, Matthew and Mark tells us, tell us that he's young. Uh, Luke tells us that he's a ruler. So you take all of this together and you, you have this picture of a, of a prominent individual in society, probably a man of some renown, a man of prestige, a man of influence in the commu- community. And most importantly, as it pertains to, to this text, he's a man of means. He's, he is rich. He's He's well-to-do, he is, he's wealthy. And so he comes to Christ, the text would suggest to us, not in a spirit of humility and need, but in a spirit of presumption, a spirit of flattery. He doesn't come, for example, in the way that Christ enjoins would-be disciples Uh, in that section that precedes this in Luke's gospel as a little child. Uh, You remember that section, the little children are are coming to Jesus and his disciples are trying to pull them away. And Jesus says, no, actually, if you would come after me, if you would follow me, it is precisely in this way that you must come as someone who is helpless, someone who's dependent, someone who is entirely trusting This man doesn't come that way. He comes confident. He comes proud. uh, He comes self-assured. He comes capable. And at the same time, it's striking to see that Jesus does not reject him. Jesus does not reject this man. Praise God uh, that our Savior does not turn away even proud, self-righteous, arrogant, misguided people. It doesn't matter what your background or what kind of baggage you have. Jesus will show you the way of salvation. 
he will display himself in his glory and saving power to you. And he tells this young man something very interesting. If you look at verse 20, he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And here again, like the Pharisee that we saw a couple of weeks back, you have a very moral man. You have a very probably religious man. He knows the commandments. He has some fluency, you could say, in the things of God. And yet he seems to intuit, and this is, this is vitally important. He, he seems to intuit that for all of his moral upstanding character, there's still something missing. There's still something missing in his life. And he wants to know what he can do to have a share in eternal life. Well, how his, his confidence must have grown when he heard Jesus's words. He must have been brimming over with his enthusiasm. How his, his chest must have puffed out when he said what comes out of his mouth next. All these I have kept from my youth. He's a model citizen. He hasn't taken anyone's life. He hasn't committed adultery, he hasn't stolen anything. He, he makes his parents proud and we don't have any reason to doubt his sincerity in, in any of these matters, even though we, we might ask ourselves, is he measuring himself up against the, the spirit of the law or, or just the letter of the law? Has he ever been angry? With, with his brother? Has he ever looked at a woman with, with lustful intent? The truth of the matter is that this man comes to Christ with, a, with quite an inflated view of himself. He comes to Christ with the, the narrowest understanding of God's righteous requirement. And then at the same time, the most generous interpretation of his own worthiness as he approaches the Lord. So, in a way that, that very much kind of parallels uh, the Pharisee's recitation of all of those things that he had done and he hadn't done, this man comes leaning on his own performance as well. But brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is not about our performance, is it? It is not about what we have done for God. It is not a faith where we come trusting in our own works, but in the works of another. The Christian faith is one where all of our hope is laid up in the work, not of ourselves, but of Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. We're those who come to God knowing that we, we can't atone for our sins. We can't climb our way up into God's good graces. We can't earn his favor. We can't merit his kindness, but there is one. There is one whose infinite favor God is pleased to impute to our account when we laid hold of him by faith, when we call on him. There's one who has lived a sinless life, who has loved 
the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength who has died in the place of guilty sinners like us. And it's when we look to him, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laying aside all of those filthy rags of our own self-righteousness, we come empty-handed to the throne of grace that we are accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Father is pleased to smile upon us, to lift us up out of the miry clay of all of our sin and unrighteousness. Now, when it comes to the man at hand, this rich ruler, we're looking at one who doesn't see this. He doesn't yet see the true station of his life before God. He doesn't recognize that he is one born in sin. He comes to Jesus, the good teacher, beset with the great hindrance that proves to be an obstacle for so many that don't know the saving power of the gospel. He is confident of his own goodness. The witness that he gives of his life is contrary to the witness that the scriptures give of every man's life. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. Was that true? Was it true that he had measured up to the standard God requires? It wasn't. It wasn't true. He was experiencing something that we all have to reckon with, that we do not see ourselves as we really are. We don't see ourselves as we really are. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We have an inflated view of our goodness, our merit, our righteousness. And you see Christ's evangelistic approach here. Again, it's not at all uh, what we have been taught to do. In effect, Jesus says to him, so you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments. So you want to enter the kingdom of God, just be perfect. Have you ever tried that approach? Any of us who want to make Jesus known, who want to be faithful in evangelism, again, we would love to have someone come up to us and ask us this question. How many of us would respond in this way? So what is Jesus doing? What's, what's going on here in the text? Look at how Jesus continues. In verse 22, the man claims to have upheld the law. The Bible says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see what Jesus is doing here. Christ exposes not only the rich man's failure to uphold the law, but he also puts his finger on the true treasure of this man's heart. To put a finer point on, on things, he, he, he identifies the fact that there is something this man loves more than God. There's something he loves more than God. I wonder if you noticed when Jesus is citing the commandments, what commandment 
he left out. He cites commandments five, six, seven, eight, and nine. They're all from the second table of the law, probably because those are the commandments that are more outwardly measurable in our lives. They're commandments dealing with love of of neighbor, but he left one commandment out. He left out commandment number 10. Young people, do you remember what commandment number 10 is? Thou shalt not covet. That's right, shalt not covet. What does Paul say about covetousness? Colossians chapter three and verse five, put to death what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry. You see, brothers and sisters, this man's one thing wasn't the one thing that should have occupied first place in his life. His one thing was not the Lord God Almighty. It was his money. It was his riches, his wealth, which was an indication that he had failed to keep not only the 10th commandment, but the first commandment as well. You shall have no other gods before me. And many have seen that the 10th commandment is in many ways a a bookend to the first in the Decalogue, in the 10 commandments. They, They mirror each other. The first says, don't let anything other than the Lord take first place in your life. And then the last comes to plumb the depths of our very desires and affections, claiming for God even those things that we love, those things that we want, Thou shalt not covet. This man lacked one thing. This man fell short of the glory of God and the righteous standard he requires. And it was in this area that that failure was most evident, his love of money. It was the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil that had caused him to fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, the Bible says, that plunged people into ruin and destruction. It was this love that had blinded him to the infinite worth of Christ. And it was love that compelled Jesus to tell him so. It was love that compelled the Lord to say this so openly and so plainly to his face. Mark's account records these words after this man said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Mark says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Looking at him, he loved him. It was love for his soul that compelled him to say what was probably the most difficult thing for this man to hear. That, beloved, is true love. That, dear ones, is love. Jesus loved this rich, proud, blind, self-righteous man. Most of us love certain kinds of people. Most of us 
find it easy to love certain kinds of people. We, we love people that are kind to us. We love people that are like us. Jesus loved even this man. He felt compassion for him. Why? He saw that he was in chains. He saw that this man was in bondage. This man was enslaved by what he had. As many have said before, it wasn't so much that he had money, but that his money had him. He was gripped by his possessions, which is why Christ calls him to sell all that he had and give to the poor that he might have treasure in heaven. He says, come, follow me. Divest yourself of all of the, the confidence and the trust that you've put in these material things that you might know true everlasting treasure. He, he exhorts him, empty yourself of all that you have for the sake of eternal life. Again, probably not the counsel that you would expect to find. The Lord has placed a, a lost sinner there in your lap. What must I do to in, inherit eternal life? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Maybe we would say something like that. That's not what Jesus says. Why? Again, this man must come to terms with the bad news before he will see the good news as truly good. He needs to see that he is a slave to sin a worshiper of false gods, an idolater at heart. He needs to see that, that Jesus is not just another God that you can tack on to the life that you already know, but he is a savior. He is a redeemer. He is a deliverer who will have no other gods beside him. No other gods besides him. That's what Jesus was up to when he said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He is not saying that you can inherit eternal life by giving away money. This is not an invitation to buy your way into heaven by divesting yourself of temporal riches. You cannot get into heaven by way of philanthropy. This is not an opportunity to purchase heavenly treasure at the price of earthly treasure, but to abandon your idols for the true and greater treasure of knowing and loving the Lord Jesus. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So bow before God, bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Make him your treasure and trust. There cannot be anything or anyone more important than him in our lives. That's the heart of the matter here. Treasure God, not gold or anything else anything else. The same applies to any other thing. One of the great errors we can fall into reading a passage like this is to dis distance ourselves from this man and to, to thank God that we don't run the risk of falling into the same kind of trap that he did because we're not rich. First of all, banish that idea from your mind. 
comparatively speaking, we have far more than anyone living in the first century world could have ever, ever dreamed of. Air conditioning, grocery stores, lights, indoor lighting. We could go on and on. Even if you are unemployed, living in this day and age, you are, you are wealthy by, bo- by most modern standards, let alone first century ones. But more than that, to focus on wealth alone overlooks the, the wider application that this has to all men who are, who are at all times treasuring something whether that's material possessions or comfort or people or ease or health or whatever it may be. We're gonna see that emphasized as we get to the end of this passage. For now, let me direct your attention to verse 23. We see two different responses to Jesus's words, first from the ruler and then from some of the the bystanders who are listening in. Look at the ruler first, verse 23. But when he heard these things, that's the call to sell all that you have, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This is one of the most tragic scenes one of the most tragic verses in the whole of Christ's ministry. This man left the presence and the teaching of the second person of the Trinity in the very same way that he came in, spiritually lost, damned, bowing before other gods, enslaved to a God that cannot save that cannot deliver, that will not last, that has no hope of ever satisfying the soul. He determined that the demand Christ issued was simply too much to ask. He could not fathom a life where wealth wasn't number one. Imagine this, dear ones. This man comes to Christ. He kneels before the Savior The gospel according to Mark tells us so. He kneels before the Lord God. He asks the right question. He hears the answer that his soul most needs to hear and he walks away downcast. He walks away sad. His countenance falls. He rejects the one in whom salvation is found. What a picture this is. What a picture this is of Matthew chapter six and verse 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will will your heart be also. This man's heart was bound up in in his possessions and what he had in his bank account. Beloved, where's your heart today? I don't, I don't ask that as a rhetorical question. Would you answer that before the Lord? Where is the treasure of your heart today? Is it with Christ? Is he your 
treasure. It's in response to this that Jesus issues this solemn warning. Verse 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might have heard inventive explanations of this passage put forward before. Things along the lines of, well, in ancient Jerusalem in the old city wall, there was a gate called the eye of the needle. And if a camel wanted to go through it, you had to take off its pack and it had to crouch down on its knees and it had to kind of shimmy its way through. Well, it's just a story. There's no real evidence of that. Apart from that, it totally obscures the very point that the Lord Jesus is seeking to make here. What does he mean for us to ascertain from this illustration? Not that this is just difficult or it's cumbersome, but that it's impossible. Jesus is not saying that this is really hard to do, but that it's impossible. Take a a camel, the biggest animal in Palestine, and try to to cram it through the eye of a needle. It, 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 It can't be done. He's using hyperbole here to get our attention. And those who are standing by understand. You see it in their response. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? You see, they got it. They they understood what Jesus was saying. Now, what prompts them to ask that? Why do they ask such a question? Well, they were operating, as many do today, on a false assumption about the blessing of God. What is that false assumption? It goes like this. Material Material possessions are a blessing from the Lord. That much is true. And because they are, that must say something about our place in the kingdom of God. That is where they went wrong. They thought that if someone was rich, they must be highly favored by the Lord. And if even the highly favored can't make their way in, what hope does anyone have? Well, then comes the glorious news. Glorious news for anyone who's ever been plagued by a love of money or any of the other sorts of things we've talked about that take first place in our lives, the place only the Lord Jesus deserves to have. What is impossible with man is possible with God. God is the one who makes the impossible possible. Praise be to God. The Lord God has the power to break loose the stronghold that money and possessions holds in the hearts of mankind or anything else that has a grip in your heart. Those who have spent their lives bowing down before idols, worshiping at the altar of money or success or the approval of man 
or the lusts of the flesh. And hear me when I say this, we're talking about every living soul that has ever been born. But those who have treasured up that which is no treasure at all, that which will not last, which those of us who have spent our lives devoted to the gods of this world can be set free from our idolatry by the Lord Jesus. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is not a work of man. It is not a mere decision. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ came into the world for this very reason. He came into the world to break the chains that idols hold in your life and in mine, whatever they are. Just as you see in this story, the good news of the gospel has come into the world to expose us, to expose our demerit, our unworthiness, and to hold out the saving power of God. It makes no bones about the depravity of man. It says you cannot come to God the way you are. Mark it in your mind, no matter how moral, no matter how upstanding you are, one thing you lack, you've not loved the Lord as he deserves to be loved. You've not worshiped and served him with your whole heart. You have bowed at the altar of false gods and your sin has made a separation. It's made a separation between you and your God. You've fallen short of his glory, but there is one who can bridge the gap. There is a mediator. There is one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by him. You can't come saying, God, look at my works, look at my service, look at my giving, look at my religion. All of these I have kept from my youth. God, really, I am a good person. But you can come saying, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. As is so often the case, Peter speaks first. I love Peter. He says, see, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. No doubt this man is looking for assurance. He is looking for comfort from his Lord. And look at what Jesus says. Verse 29. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Following Christ is always costly, but it will never leave you impoverished. Jesus speaks here of rewards now and in the life to come. For many, 
Following Christ means letting goods and kindred go. For some, even this mortal life also. But for many, leaving behind houses or family for the sake of the kingdom of God. And astonishingly, Jesus speaks of receiving many times more in this time, in this age, one we're living in. Now, how is that the case, brethren? Mark's account helps us here. He quotes Jesus saying that his disciples will will receive this. A hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Now, where are these houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands? Do you remember what Jesus said when his mother and brothers came looking for him while he was engaged in his ministry? He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around at his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And the same is true for all who would follow after him. The same is true for all of us. Dear ones, look around you. I mean it, just look around you. Look all around you. See the more than hundredfold the Lord has already graciously granted to you in this age. Brothers and sisters and houses represented all around you. And then call to mind the millions of brethren that we have around the world united together by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And then consider, if you will, the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands who will join together with you in the age to come, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Following Christ is always costly, but it will never leave you impoverished. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good beyond words. Lord, you are infinitely good. We can only begin to apprehend your worthiness, your righteousness, the splendor of your character, your beauty and glory. Lord, for all of your goodness, we give you praise. Lord, we see your goodness even in exposing our lost and miserable condition. God, how foolishly we had followed after idols. Lord, how, how miserable we were bowing down before gods that have no power to save, gods that are not gods at all. How enslaved we were, how blind we were to your glory and worth till Christ came in till the good news of the gospel was proclaimed and you gave us ears to hear 
and eyes to see and hearts to feel our need of a savior. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy toward us. Thank you, God, for new hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts with desires that we never had before, to love you, to worship you, to serve you. God, we pray today for your empowering grace that we might put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life, that old self that's corrupt through deceitful desires, all of those desires that would have us believe that there's still something, something else worth treasuring other than Christ. Grant us your grace, Lord. Sanctify us, Lord, for your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.